Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Latifa Farah, Associate Creative Producer at Venture for Canada and the producer of a new wave of entrepreneurship. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneur mindset and skills. We'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. We're excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. We are very excited to have Tim Jackson, who is the CEO of Shad, uh, on a new wave of entrepreneurship this morning. Tim, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. And it was a pleasure uh, catching up with you in the, uh, the pre-recorded uh, interview. We had a great conversation about magic, uh, the nonprofit sector, a variety of different, uh, of different topics. Uh, but first, one of the things I want to explore is um, kind of learnings between the nonprofit and for-profit sectors. And for our listeners' background, Tim really has a wealth uh, of uh, professional experiences. He runs a major national charity. He's worked at the University of Waterloo. He's run a venture capital fund. He's worked at Mars Discovery District. Uh, he's led software company. Uh, there are few people who I've interviewed on this podcast of the dozens of people who probably have as breadth of uh, professional experiences uh, as, as Tim. So to kind of get things uh, kicked off, Tim, uh, what is one thing that you think the for-profit sector can learn from the not-for-profit sector? The, the for-profit sector, I think, needs to think more uh, empathetically and, and needs to think about the, the investment they're making in, in their people and, and thinking always about the idea that doing good is a... Um, uh, you know, has benefits beyond the, 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 the bottom line. And so what I mean by that is if you think about at a charitable organization like SHAD or at any charitable organization, I think you have clear objectives, which are what's the impact you're trying to have. And everyone at the organization presumably is working towards those objectives. And yes, in the for-profit sector, you, you may have those and often it's you know, bottom line uh, or it's we want to you know, make all our customers happy. And there's a, there's a bottom line a piece that comes out of, out of that. Um, but it's this idea that we are going to, you, you can still do that, I think, while doing good and while treating your people uh, appropriately. And so if you think about you know, a, a charitable organization that is usually helping somebody, um, there's, there's, there's a person at the end that they're, they're helping, there's an empathy that happens within the organization to say, you know, we're not just dealing with numbers, we're not just dealing with applicants, we're not just dealing with people we're serving. Um, there, there is, there is someone there, and it, I think it creates that sense internally of, um, you know, I want to do my, my my job because I'm actually helping people, and that's and and there just becomes a sense of empathy within uh, within an organization. It's how you treat people. It's how you deal with when things aren't aren't going well, and I think sometimes we lose that in the for-profit sector. I mean, clearly. You know, yes, you're accountable to shareholders, and yes, there's there's a bottom line that is that is critical. Uh, but how you go about that, I think, is uh, that's why how, how I think you judge people is is how do they go about things, and I think that's where we can learn a lot from the the nonprofit sector in the in the for-profit sector. Do you think that there can be downsides uh, towards empathy? And I mentioned this with the kind of pretext that. Um, Paul Bloom, who's a psychologist at Yale University, I think he has a whole book that's literally called "The Downsides of Empathy." And and he talks about how empathy can result in burnout, how it can actually result in bias, because if you empathize too much with one person, it can make you kind of biased against others and a whole slew of other things. So uh, in what way do you think that there can be downsides uh, to, to empathy? 
Yeah, I think you have to be careful. So it does not mean, for example, that, you know, everyone should be uh, trying to solve everyone's problem or, you know, I, I, I use Shad as an example. We're in a period right now where we've just sent out um, our offers for the summer 2022 program. So there are unfortunately, um, uh, you know, a few, a couple thousand students who've got uh, notices from us in the last 24 hours saying you didn't get accepted to the program this year, either waitlist or, um, uh, or, or you're or, or not accepted. Um, you, you, every one of those that phones and says, oh, I, you know, what, what did I screw up? How did I, what was wrong with my application? How did I get in? You can't just put them in the program. There still has to be guidelines and there still has to be a, a framework. Um, and I think that, you know, in terms of internally, I don't think empathy means that you, you know, you're working people to the core and whatnot. I mean, that's one of the, the knocks against the charitable organizations is I remember hearing a, an executive director of a large organization many years ago talk about how uh, they were frustrated because you know, their employees should have been working around the clock because of the cause. And I thought, well, no, hold on a second here. They are still people who have lives outside the, the organization. They're clearly dedicated to, to the work. And so that, that, when I talk about being empathetic, I actually mean, mean um, that, 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 that there's a, the acknowledgement that there's other things going on. So I understand your situation. Yes, you're dedicated to our cause and you're working it, but you also have a family. You also have, have to have uh, downtime. So I'm not sure I'm completely answering your question, but it's, you know, I, I, to me, it's that balance. And you, empathy should not be an excuse for uh, changing standards or, uh, or just doing every, any, every, anything anyone asks you to do. Do you think that there's a trend uh, amongst kind of corporations where, let's say 10 years ago, a lot of corporations, their definition of kind of doing good was, okay, we're going to have a corporate sustainability team and we're going to give some money to a bunch of charities <laughs> and we, you know, we might uh, run, uh, buy some carbon offsets for our buildings and then we're all good. Versus today, kind of recognizing that uh, uh, purpose is an inherent uh, uh component of that company's kind of bottom line. Do you see that shift at taking place? Yeah, absolutely. I've been very fortunate to be very involved in the impact investing space, which is uh, the, the notion that um, you can make a financial investment into something and also provide a social uh, outcome. So, so you're looking at investing, not just through a, a financial lens, but also a, a social lens. And so that is an emerging, uh, emerging space. And you're seeing foundations, governments, uh, pension funds start to move uh, towards this, this idea of impact investing or socially responsible investing. In one of my volunteer roles, I chair the, uh, the investment committee for a community foundation that has about $100 million. And, and we are moving to 100% socially responsible investing. And so the implications for, for, for that, for your question is, the type of companies that we're going to look at are changing. So it used to be, we would just you know, have a typical portfolio, 60% in equities, 40% in fixed income. And in those equities, you would hire a manager to have so much in Canadian equities, so much in international equities, so much in US equities. Well, now those managers that are reporting are gonna have to tell us what those companies are doing from a, an environmental social governance standpoint, from a socially responsible standpoint. So it needs to be embedded in what that company is, is, is doing for them to uh, have us as a, a shareholder. And as you start to see the emergence of, of impact funds, um, it's, it's, it's going to happen not just with the public markets, but it's going to start to trickle down so that the, the whole, I think the whole feeder system of, of companies that will have access to capital are going to have to have these uh, multiple bottom lines. And I don't mean multiple bottom lines the way you, know, you, you said some people would just check boxes. It's truly, what are we actually doing? 
that will have uh, a, a social impact as well as an, an economic impact. So it's a huge emerging trend. I was very fortunate to be Canada's representative on the G7 task force um, that did a whole bunch of work on this. And, and I'm thrilled that we're starting to see people like foundations say, we're going to actually you know, walk the talk with our, our investment dollars to, to change the way corporations think. Yeah, there's a huge opportunity for foundations to think about their impacts uh, beyond granting, as, as you mentioned, and, and actually thinking about, in many ways, the greatest impact that foundations can have is to the assets of, the, of their endowment, which uh, is huge. It's way more than what they're granting each year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you every uh, under Canadian, Canada's current um, disbursement uh, quota rules, a uh, charity gives away 3.5% of its, uh, its assets each year. So 96.5% is is sitting there and and so the the idea of what we were doing uh through the the, the social finance um task force uh and our recommendations that, that i was fortunate to sit on were say how do we unlock that 96.5 percent the biggest asset a foundation has is its endowed fund so let's put that towards uh, its mission not just the three and a half percent it grants each year a topic of substantial debate in the charitable sector is uh, the charitable disbursement quota. So as Tim, you mentioned, uh, under Canadian law, it's currently at 3.5%. Uh, a kind of a hidden thing in the most recent conservative uh, platform was they actually proposed uh, increasing it to 7%, which was kind of an interesting uh, first time I think I've seen a federal uh, political party uh, put that actually in their uh, election uh, platform. And there's a lot of pressure by nonprofits uh, to the kind of Canadian government um, to look at potentially changing. A lot of other countries have a higher charitable disbursement quota. There's a lot of allegations that basically, uh, you know, a lot of wealthy families can kind of hoard their money in these foundations. And if you're earning a 10% return and you only have to give three and a half percent, you know, the, the nest egg of the foundation can, uh, you know, in essence, still be growing like six and a half percent per year. So uh, my question to you, Tim, is do you think the Canadian government uh, and the CRA should seriously be considering about increasing the charitable disbursement quota? I think the short answer is yes. I think it's it, the longer answer is I think it's a little bit more complicated. And I do think it probably has to um, be a little bit flexible based on what's going on in markets and returns. Uh, I also think there's a whole question for, from my standpoint around endowed funds. And, and I, obviously I understand the, the concept of endowed funds and I understand the idea of honoring a, the, the wishes of a donor. Um, but I've often thought that endowing funds in perpetuity um, seems like you're, you're putting so little of the, the money to work each year, but I almost wonder if, it, if the idea should be to spend it down over a, a longer period of time. You know, I don't have $100 million, but I, I've always thought that if I had $100 million and I was giving it to a foundation to say, would you please do some good with this? I would say, I'd like you to spend it over 20 years where my money will actually will, will have an impact. And so I think the challenge with a fixed disbursement quota is uh, markets change. And so you have a situation where, you know, if, we, if, the, if the markets crash and everyone's returns go down, what's the right number? Is it, you know, maybe the, it, you, you, I suppose you never want to go to, to zero. So it's finding what that balance is um, around, you know, trying to match returns with, with uh, preservation of capital. And, I, and my bias is that the preservation of capital is not so important to me. Um, to me, it's more, you know, can we have an, an impact? And, you know, if someone can have an impact over a 20 or 25 year period versus, you know, quote unquote, in perpetuity, um, I'm actually okay with that. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent of letting people spend more. Um, and, and I'm actually a big proponent of uh, encouraging people who are giving money uh, significant amounts of money to to foundations uh, to not actually endow it, but uh, make it uh, have the ability to spend it down over what could still be a long period of time, but just not in perpetuity. 
Uh, a great example of a philanthropist, I think more uh, a philanthropist should look at is Mackenzie Scott, who is the uh, ex-wife of, uh, of Jeff Bezos, who uh, through the divorce ended up, uh, I think receiving a settlement of like 60 or $70 billion. And she is uh, of any philanthropist in history, giving away her money at a faster rate than any other person. She And she's giving it away to hundreds of organizations in multi-year grants that have no strings attached and saying, we trust do you, uh, and her goal is to basically give away her entire fortune in like 20 years. But it's a very different uh, model than like historically the Carnegie or the Rockefeller, I mean, the Rockefeller Foundation today is still, or the Ford Foundation are based on fortunes that were made, you know, 70, uh, 80 uh, years ago. So it will be interesting to see, you know, the shift. Uh, and also the fact that she is giving away a huge amount of money, but has not set up any professional foundation. Uh, so she has a small team. There's not a ton of grant monitoring. It's just like, give us your annual report once a year. So it's a very different kind of uh, uh, setup. I, 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 so I think, and, and to me, that makes sense. And the reason I say it makes sense is we have challenges today that we have not solved. So, you know, and, and the list is massive, right? Whether it's, it's, it's the access to uh, safe drinking water, whether it's uh, dealing with poverty, whether it's literacy, a uh, whole bunch of, of issues. If we were sitting here saying, well, most of our issues are dealt with, I've got no, no problem then with someone saying, well, I'm gonna endow it for in perpetuity uh, and my name will live on. Um, but the reality is we, we have these unmet challenges. So I actually think what she's doing is, uh, is, is fantastic because she's saying there is a need today and I have wealth today, and I'm going to try to move the needle on a, a few of these things. Um, and the idea of unrestricted funding, I mean, as a charitable CEO, um, that is invaluable. Right? I mean, this, the idea that, uh, and, and we're seeing more and more of that, and we're seeing it not, you know, with big donors, with small donors who are simply saying, we, just, we trust you and we trust the organization. We trust what you're trying to do. So use this money the best way you can. Um, you know, I'm fortunate to have never been in this situation, but you, you and I would probably both know charitable leaders who have got all this money to run programs, but uh, then, then don't know how to actually pay the, uh, to, to fund to turn on the lights each, each day because no one wanted to, for a period of time, wanted to fund what they would call overhead. Um, and so I, actually, I think the model that she's using is fantastic. And I think that you know, she's going to have a meaningful impact. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm just from a different, different um, I don't know if it's a different generation, the idea of me wanting to endow something uh, forever so that 100 years from now, people know my name, just, just doesn't mean a thing to me. I, I would rather people remember that you know, I gave money and, and helped solve a, a certain issue and uh, versus that my name is, is on something. I agree. I think candidly, when donors uh, are very stingy with the charitable disbursement quota, and uh, that I think it's important for people to look in the mirror a little bit and think about ego. And ego plays a role in donations all the time, right? There's always a reason sure. people donate. But to think about, ultimately, it's about the impact. And that means, I think, to your point, there's a lot of problems that exist today. Uh, let's, uh, the, you know, solve those, try to solve those problems uh, now. But kind of shifting back a little bit to the first question, uh, which I asked, what can the uh, 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 for-profit sector learn from the not-for-profit sector? Conversely, Tim, what do you think are things that the not-for-profit sector can learn from the for-profit sector? Well, and I think that the answer to that question is going to tie to the, the conversation we just had. So I think it's this idea of not being afraid to fail. 
it's the idea of iterating and experimenting. And um, I think of all the things that I've been able to bring uh, on my journey from my, from the for-profit sector to the nonprofit, that's the biggest. Um, and, and so it's, it's a combination both of mindset and resources. So it's the mindset of saying, um, as a nonprofit organization, as a charitable organization, we're not going to get everything right the first time. Now, it doesn't mean you tolerate incompetence, but it does mean you, you embrace the idea of risk-taking, um, experimenting, uh, trial and error. Uh, often, charities are reluctant to do that for two reasons. Uh, one is they don't have access to the funding to, to allow them to do it. And the second is that they're scared to tell their boards or their donors that they've, they've made mistakes. But I go back to when I was a venture capitalist. So I was doing with my partners early stage uh, technology investment in and around Waterloo. And if we met a group of entrepreneurs and they came to us and they had an idea for a, a new business and we agreed to invest and they had said that they needed a million dollars. If we made the decision to invest, we would typically say we're going to invest, but we're going to give you two million. And the reason we're going to give you two million is the business plan you've put together that says you're going to spend a million dollars just doesn't give you any room to make mistakes or to iterate. Um, and so we, we recognize that and, and so gave them twice the money they needed. The nonprofit sector, I think, needs to act the same way. So if you're going to roll out a new program or you're going to experiment on, on trying to do something new, it's never going to go uh, according to plan. I mean, it just, it just never does. So it's usually going to take longer. It's going to typically uh, you require a, a more money than you think. But the key from for, for my standpoint is you have to you know, start to go down your, your path. When you see a need to change, you've got to act and change quickly, but not be afraid to, to change and iterate. One challenge I've seen with a lot of people is they say, oh, I want to be involved in the nonprofit sector, but they don't know where to start. Uh, what advice would you have for people uh, on how to get involved in the nonprofit sector? So I think uh, there's a couple of su suggestions. So one is if you have a particular background, so I'm an accountant, right? I studied accounting, I haven't done accounting for years, but I first got involved in the nonprofit sector and through board stuff because they needed a treasurer. And, uh, and so, you know, while, you know, you, some, you often will say, well, if I do accounting all day, I don't want to do it in my volunteer uh, world. It's often the easiest way to get in. So, you know, and, then, and that could be, you know, boards are looking for people with marketing skills. They're looking for people uh, who have some technical skills. It just depends on what organizations are looking for. So, so that's, you know, that's clearly, uh, that may be the way to get it. Today, I think I'm, I'm not asked to join boards because I'm an accountant anymore. Uh, but the challenge is that, you know, many boards will say, well, we're looking for board members with experience. Well, how do you get experience if no one will give you that, that first shot? So that, that's number one. Um, second is, there are often uh, paths to boards that start off with committees or other ways of volunteering. And so, you know, I take someone like the Community Foundation that I'm on the board of and, and chair the investment committee. We have grant committees and other committees that are not board committees that people from the community get involved in. And then that's often where we recruit board members from. Um, and there's many organizations uh, like that that, that have, uh, you know, have, a, have a committee structure and, uh, and then identify board members. Um, here in, in Waterloo region, where I'm based, uh, there's a volunteer action center, which is a, an actual center set up to help uh, charitable organizations, nonprofit organizations find volunteers. So they actually are a great place uh, when someone reaches out to me to say, hey, Tim, any thoughts on boards or I, how I could get involved? I'll, I often suggest the volunteer action center may not start off as a board role. It may just being involved, being involved in an organization. And then you, you go from there. I mean, I got involved when I came to Waterloo. Um, my first role was as treasurer of the food bank. Uh, my spouse and I had always given to the food bank in Toronto. 
when we came to Waterloo, uh, we searched out the local food bank to say we'd, we would like to just make a monthly uh, monthly contribution. A um, couple of weeks later, I happened to run into, I didn't know at the time, the executive director of the food bank. Uh, and we chatted and he said, oh, you're you know new donor, moved into town, blah, blah. I said, oh, we're looking for a treasurer. And one thing led to another. So it's, it's you know, ways of getting, getting involved. And so that could be volunteering at, uh, at an organization. But I, I do recognize it's tough to get in that first time, um, uh, particularly you know, right at the board level, because let's say, they often are looking for board experience. Um, so there are, you know, I, it, there's been times in our community, um, and I think it's about to launch again, where a program that was called at one point Youth on Board, where, um, where youth were matched up with, with board members and they actually got to experience uh, you know, sitting and shadowing someone in, in boards. When I chaired the library uh, board, we had, uh, we had a youth involved uh, through that program. So, you know, depending on, you know, age and whether, you know, how, how youth's defined, that's another way in many communities there are these, uh, these organizations where you can actually shadow somebody. And if not, just ask someone if they can shadow someone. A critical point of advice, I think, for listeners to think about is focus on volunteering first for the organization before just going to the board. And I think that a challenge of a lot of people I find is that when they say, oh, I wanna be involved in the nonprofit sector, it's sometimes a little too ego-driven where it's like, okay, I wanna be on this board and I wanna get this, this title versus it's about ultimately about giving back. And also for most organizations, if they're at a certain size, they're not just adding somebody onto their board who has no previous involvement with, with the organization. That doesn't make sense for the incoming director, nor does that make sense uh, for the, the, the organization itself. So. Uh, I think your advice, Tim, is really critical. Like, go volunteer, go be part of a, of a committee. I, there's a charity I'm involved with, and I'm on two committees, and I'm not on the board, but it's a useful experience. Yeah. Well, and I should I should have started off to answer your question, but you got to find something you're passionate about. And if you're not if you're not passionate enough about it to volunteer, you probably should be putting your name for it as a board member. Yeah, that is a that is a really critical point of advice, and it's it's also important for listeners to understand too. Is serving on a board, there's varying degrees, but it's often a substantial time commitment. I mean, if if you're a director of a large charity, there's a fair amount of time involved, and then also if if you're a committee chair or if you're a chair of the boards, you're talking about a a, a substantial amount of time that you're devoting to that organization. Well, on top of your day job, exactly, and and things can happen. So executive director resigns because they go on to a new role. Well, now the board has got to do the hiring. That's a huge time commitment. So there's, there's also the, the, not just the, the meetings that you know are going to happen. It's the uncertainty. I, I'm fortunate. I, one of my volunteer roles right now, we are in the middle of um, merger negotiations with another nonprofit organization. So on top of our regular stuff, we're also dealing with with that. And so, yeah, you have to be prepared that the, the time commitment uh, can be substantial. Also extremely rewarding, but uh, it is, you know, it's not something you can just do and say, well, I assume they're just going to need me, you know, once, two hours, once a month for a board meeting. Yeah. It's important to show up and show up a hundred percent. To show up and to show up. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier in the conversation, we talked about the importance of entrepreneurial thinking uh, in the charitable sector. What does it, what does being entrepreneurial look like to you? Yeah. So for me, I think it's the idea that you are, you're seeing a problem and then you're developing a solution to the problem, but you're doing it in a way that says, I know I'm going to have to iterate along the way. So I, you know, here's a problem. I've, I, you, you've got to come up with a plan. You have to start with it. But the only thing you know about that plan is it's wrong, but you have to start somewhere. And so I, when I think about people who we think about entrepreneurs, we do think about them as starting something. 
Um, but I think they all have in common the idea that they iterated along the way. So they tried, and I think the sign of a great entrepreneur are the ones that iterate early. And I saw this when I was running a venture capital firm. Um, I had no issue at all with, uh, with our entrepreneurial teams that would come to the board and say, we're going we're gonna to do a pivot and we're going we're gonna to tweak. But the good ones did it early rather than just going down a path, you know, banging their heads against the wall saying, well, we think this should work, but didn't work. Well, we're going to keep trying, keep trying. So to me, that what, entrepreneurial thinking, when I think about it, is as simple as that. It's, uh, you know, seeing a, seeing a problem, finding a solution and recognizing it's not a, a straight path. You have to iterate along the way. You're the CEO of Shad, which is one of Canada's largest uh, entrepreneurial uh, development charities or entrepreneurial skill development charities uh, in the country. Can you describe how Shad fosters uh, entrepreneurial skills in, in young Canadians? Yeah. So Shad is a program that uh, our, our primary program is a 27 day uh, live-in program where students uh, in grade 10 and 11 spend the month of July away from home at one of about 20 universities. So during the course of the month, the students live in residence, uh, they get uh, university style lectures, workshops, hands-on learning. But the root of the program or the core of the program is a design challenge. So during the very first week of the program, we give the students a massive challenge. So last year was, how might Canadians treat fresh water with more respect? That's a massive statement. By the end of the month, working in teams, they have to come up with a solution to that problem, uh, ideally using engineering or scientific principles. So they're essentially building a little business uh, to solve that, that problem. And so it, you know, they might start with this, how might uh, we help Canadians treat fresh water with more respect? And they might end up uh, with a solution that is, we're going to put a sensor, a motion sensor on, on taps in bathrooms so that when you're brushing your teeth, uh, the tap automatically turns off to save water. That would be an example. But so for us, it's that journey of how do you go from a massive problem to a real specific solution? And so and we, we do that, obviously taking the teams through a, a process, uh, but it's an entrepreneurial journey. So it's starting off understanding the space. Entrepreneurial skills are needed in all sectors of the Canadian economy, be it public sector, uh, nonprofit sector, for-profit uh, sector. One thing we talked about uh, in the uh, the pre-interview, uh, Tim, which I thought was really interesting, and I, I think I might bring up as a as a closing question, uh, is your experience as a magician. And you talked about how you've been a magician uh, since uh, you, you were a child, uh, and you discovered it at a, a local a book about magic at a local uh, library. Uh, and I, in terms of your background today, if someone's listening and it's uh, it's audio, so. Uh, Tim has a, a series of uh, magic posters or historic magic posters behind him. So he still has the, uh, the love of magic uh, to, to, uh, uh, today. So in what ways uh, has being a magician uh, taught you different entrepreneurial skills? I think there's two things that, that come to mind. First is the idea that someone can tell you how to do something, but you have to make it your own. So I can go out and I can buy a trick that David Copperfield does or Penn and Teller does. And if I just take that trick and duplicate it and use the same pattern, use the same uh, uh, gestures that David Copperfield did, it's not going to work for me because I'm not David Copperfield. He has a certain persona. Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller, he, Penn has a certain persona. And so you know, what, what I've learned from that is I might love the, the effect uh, or the trick, and I then have to make it my own. And so how do I adapt it to, to me? And so I do a little bit of magic typically when I'm crisscrossing the, the country visiting our campuses. And so what's appropriate for me? I can't go out there and do Pendulette's uh, routine uh, in front of Shad. I have to do Tim Jackson's routine in front of Shad. So it's that idea of 
someone's given me something, but I don't have to make it my own and I have to tweak it. The other is the problem solving piece. Um, so I, I saw during COVID a, a great magician do a Zoom show uh, and he did a particular card trick and, uh, and I loved it. And I, and I had I thought about how could I do that same trick? And so I don't know how he did it. I don't know exactly what he did. Um, but I spent, and it literally took me a couple of months of just playing around to come up with a way to do that same trick and then to figure out how does it work for me? So I'm a big poker player. I have a big poker group. And so I, I won't bore you with the whole, the, the, the detail, details, but it essentially is a trick where I, I spread out a deck of cards and people can either pick the top card or the bottom card and they, they pick a total of five and that's a, that gives them a hand. The next person can do the same top or bottom. And at the end of it, four people have picked the, these cards and they're choosing, you know, do I want one from the top, four from the bottom, whatever maybe. And all five, or pardon me, all four have royal flushes. And so for me, that fits. I'm a poker player. The folks that I hang around with it are my poker group. Um, so I, I took the idea that I saw this magician do and said, I think there's something here that I can apply to both poker uh, but I have to figure out how he did it, and then how does it relate? So that this the problem solving part of magic. I just I just absolutely absolutely love. And to an important point that uh, entrepreneurship is so linked with with creativity, and I think that uh, uh, pursuing different diverse hobbies uh, and uh, things outside of work is so integral to fostering that entrepreneurial skills and mindset. It, absolutely. So I, I, I can't sing. I can't play a musical instrument. Um, when I, if I start humming along to a tune, my family or my poker buddies tell me to stop it. It's so bad. Um, so, but magic, so magic is my creative outlet. And while I, I will typically say I'm not creative at all, um, sometimes someone will say, well, hold on, but what about the magic stuff? And so it's true. So it's finding where your, your comfort is. I mean, you know, I'm an accountant who ended up running a national charitable organization. So, you know, you have to have that, that combination of, uh, let's call it the core, the financial type of, of, of skills and background. Um, and as much as I like to say, I'm not creative, clearly I have a bit of a creative bent. Uh, I just choose to do it through magic versus say through, uh, through playing a musical instrument. Tim, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today. One of the really significant themes of this episode has been the importance of entrepreneurial skills in general, but also in the context of the nonprofit sector. And I think the work that you're doing at Shad is fantastic. I think you had a lot of really great insights about why it's so important that nonprofits are entrepreneurial and how they can become more entrepreneurial. Tim, it's been a true pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, it was my pleasure, Scott. Always enjoyed chatting with you. So thanks for having me on. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture4Canada, that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Stewart, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A new wave of entrepreneurship is produced by Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormanston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. 
any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.